Welcome to Secrets, the recent winner of the Black Podcasters Listeners Love Award, where KP and PR share their knowledge and experiences in corporate America to advocate for creating generational wealth for the village. Here's how our listener describes Secrets. Keith and Ricky talk about everything in the workplace and beyond that you've always wanted to know about but never really felt comfortable asking. From microaggressions to being your authentic self to systemic racism, KP and PR provide some of the most excellent career advice on the market. And in season six, these brothers will continue coming with hot fire on how to stay on code and trying to reach and exceed your career aspirations, how to use your power and privilege for good, and how to survive the same old corporate performative acts. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, want to challenge you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. So fill up those cups and welcome to season six. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Secrets. Another fantastic episode on its way. Ricky, what's happening today, my brother? Wait, what's happening, KP, man? I was going through, you know, our email and I ran across one that commented on our episode we did on the four P's of Black expectation. Punctuality, pronunciation, perfection, and performance. And sometimes people really don't think those things uh, is a real thing, Keith, but based off of that episode and based off what you and I've been through, is serious. But this listener wrote the following. He said, Keith and Ricky, that episode you did on the, uh, the four P's really struck a nerve with me. As a Black man, I've received so many microaggressive comments related to these four areas. Comments like, you're so articulate, or I'm surprised you arrived on time, or you forgot to add a comma here. It's just crazy how you hear so many of these types of comments on a daily or weekly basis. So I was just grateful to hear that I'm not the only one experiencing these things and how they are used to hold us back. Thanks again. And then he signs off with thanks for bringing this uh, to the light. At the end of the day, this is what KP and PR do. Okay. We bring these tough issues that, you know, again, people want us to walk around thinking like we're crazy, you know, sometimes, Keith. And this right here is a real scenario. All the time, all the time, man. You ain't said nothing. And that listener was so on point. You know, we shared the receipts in that episode about, you know, how this is reality for many of us. But we really wanted to bring somebody in today, an expert in today that could really talk about this scenario with some data and let you know that these things are, you know, all these subjective things, they really don't matter at the end of the day. And they're really not determinate in terms of your ability to actually do the work. It's all kind of extra noise that's out there and excuses to kind of hold you back. And again, as we've been talking about all season, part of being on code is like dismantling some of these expectations and biases so that we can actually move forward and create opportunity for our people. So today we are so, so lucky and grateful to have Mark Palmer join us today. And Ricky, why don't you just put a little stank on Mark's credentials so everybody knows who they're talking to today? <laughs> Not a problem. So look, this is my pleasure, man. Uh, so this brother, Mark Palmer, is the co-creator of the Position Success Indicator, the Job Fit Calculator, and uh, labor genome, talent mapping technology. So this brother is doing some big stuff here, okay? He is co-author of the Innovative Leader Field Book and senior editor for the Innovative Leadership Guide to Transforming Organizations. Mark is also a consultant and principal and advisor with the Innovative Leadership Institute. 
a management consulting firm offering progressive leadership development, team building, and organizational effectiveness. Mark has 20 years of corporate experience, including strategic planning, market research, and data analysis. He is a contributing writer, editor, and lecturer on leadership development and organizational development. Mark received his BA in social and behavioral science from the Ohio State University, and his work includes economics, cultural studies, anthropology. Man, I am pleased to welcome our friend to the Secrets Foundation here over here, the Secrets Club, the Secrets Community. Mark Palmer, welcome to the show, brother. Like again, if there's one thing I want people to listen to when they when as we're talking about these credentials, you're doing some stuff that like we don't find a whole bunch of people doing, right? So we want to be able to bring this to the stage and make sure that we let your story be heard. Well, fellas, I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. I love what you're doing. I'm very excited to talk today and connect with the audience. And uh, yeah, I definitely took the road less traveled. Let's just say that. <laughs> That's amazing. Welcome to the show, Mark and Ricky. I think we got another purple unicorn over here. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't normally see that. You know what I'm saying? You may not see that in a lifetime, actually. So, but this is going to be just an outstanding episode. So uh, listeners, today we're going to talk to Mark about his story and his career journey, as we often do with our guests. We'll also get his perspective on the role data and behavioral science can play in leveling the playing field for marginalized communities. We'll provide some receipts on representation in Mark's field of expertise, as well as receipts on bias in hiring. And then we'll close out with a double dose of secrets from Mark on tools you can use to align your career and how leaders can use their power and privilege for good to dismantle discriminatory systems in the workplace. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Keith, I'm excited, man. So let's go ahead and, uh, and jump into it. Let's hit uh, Mark with that first question. Yeah, so we always start these things, Mark, by getting under the hood, peeling the onion back just a little bit so people know who they're talking to. You know, Ricky did all the flashy stuff and, you know, talked about the credentials <laughs> and everything. But we really want to know who is Mark? How'd you grow up? You know, talk a little bit about your educational journey, your career journey, just so people get a feel for who they actually interacted with today. Oh, man, y'all opening a can of worms over here. It's okay. <laughs> so I grew up in a pretty small town. I grew up in the Midwest in a town called Steubenville, Ohio. It is actually on the border for context for people. This town is on the border of Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. So, yeah, it's like that. So, unique town, steel mill town, industrial, very blue collar. Also, in its own way, somewhat diverse. It's a very old town. It was actually the town itself formed right around the Revolutionary War. So, it has a unique kind of cultural feel to it, but it was a, a hard place to grow up. I love my town, home of the Big Red. I love my town. You know, grew up pretty conventionally. Uh, mother's a missionary. You know, my father is kind of a science guy, kind of a fun guy, very conventional. I played sports. I was, you know, very fortunate to be part of an honors program growing up. I got a lot of different exposure to different types of people. You know, in a town like that, you had a lot of old European cultures, like old Italian culture, Polish, Irish, as well as Black folk. So very, very different. I think very unique. And I think that exposure helped me later on in life 
But, you know, certainly up to the time I graduated and I ended up going to Ohio State, that was my world, right? I didn't know much beyond that. You know, we didn't travel a lot. You know, I grew up the way everybody else did, pretty modest, you know, and pretty conventional. So ended up at Ohio State. You know, I got a scholarship. I was very fortunate to get a scholarship at Ohio State uh, for academics. And um, I got into behavioral science on accident. I actually started in an engineering program and found out very, very quickly, brother was not cut out for engineering. But what it did teach me was to hone in on what I really wanted and to hone in on what I was sort of naturally had an affinity for. So for the first two years of undergrad, I was undecided. Now, my mother didn't like that at all. She drove up two and a half hours. She was with my aunt and she drove up to find me during the end of the program. There was an orientation and she drove up to find me and I was nowhere to be found in the engineering orientation. I went to the undecided orientation, you know, thought I was cute, very happy with myself. And the lecture, you know, was going over everything. And then he stopped and he He just stopped. He looked up. He said, may I help you? And it was my mother in the background going, I just need to get my son. Yeah, I knew it was a wrap. (laughs) It definitely was. I knew it was a wrap. (laughs) When your mom and your auntie show up, you in trouble. Mom and auntie showed up. Mama Nim. When Mama Nim show up. (laughs) Mama Nim showed up. (laughs) And she said, why is your tail not in engineering? And, you know, it was an inflection point for me. I said, you know what, Mom? I'm not cut out for that. I said, I'm going to search around. I said, I think this is the move for me. Now, she wasn't feeling that at the time. Let me just put it like that. But I give her, I give her and my father a lot of credit. They trusted me to kind of follow my own instincts. And maybe some of that is part of the generation that I'm part of, Generation X. You know, we're sort of encouraged during that generation, the latchkey kids, to be a lot more resilient, kind of search for things on our own. And so that spoke to me personally. And so for the next two years, what I discovered about myself was that I loved observing people, what people did, how people moved in their space, how they navigated experience, how they perceived reality. And so school for me was a way to get a structured vocabulary on how all those things sort of fit together. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was code building. I was getting a formal education on how to catalog and structure the codes that shape people's reality. So I had a language to describe my own upbringing and my own conditioning in reality, but also other people. So I think that was real pivotal for me. Yeah, look, I appreciate, you know, you being able to share your story, Mark. I mean, just you chose such a unique field of study and a career path. And even as you were challenging yourself at an undergraduate school, trying to figure out what you wanted to do, I just, I like that resiliency that you uh, speak to. But how did you land in market research and data science? And more importantly, describe what it is that you actually do. Because I gotta be honest with you, until we started talking, I never heard of a brother being in that space. So like, again, bring us up to speed on you know, how you got into that and what it is that you actually do. Well, I'll tell you, I literally fell into all of those fields. When I was in undergrad, those fields were not explicitly called out. My sophomore year, I took a year off. I went to New York, 
I hung out with my cousin. We did some music. I worked. And then I came back, came back to Ohio State, picked up my scholarship and had to select a major. And I selected social behavioral science. I said, well, looks like these are all the classes I took during Undecided. This is me. I like understanding people. Don't know what I'm going to do with that, but it's me. So I'll figure it out like I always do. So I'll never forget there was a career day and students were encouraged to go to the career day, typically business students or engineering students who were still a lot of my friends at the time in undergrad. But I, I had moved on to behavioral science and I was kind of uniquely alone in that journey. You know, none of my friends had, you know, taken that path. You know, their parents said, no, you're going to go in engineering or science or pharmacy or business. You're going to get a degree and get a job. Me, I decided to do my own thing. So I'll never forget, I was preparing for a career day and it was 11 o'clock at night. I was putting a resume together. I'd never seen a resume before in my life. Somebody showed me an example at nine o'clock at night. And I went to computer lab because, you know, back then nobody had a PC. So I had to go to the computer lab at 11 at night. With your floppy disk. Yeah, with the floppy disk. Old school here, y'all. You know, putting this resume together. You know, I barely used, I don't even know if it was Word at the time. I can't remember what it was. But whatever processing program I used, I slapped it together. Within an hour, I had something like a resume. So I get to the career day the next day. Again, ignorance is bliss. I know nothing. All the business students are there, all the engineering students are there, and there's me, behavioral science guy. So I said, hey, you know what? I took a year off. I starved in New York. I got to see people. I just know people. That's what I know. I'm going to leverage what I know because that's what I do. So rather than standing in line with my resume, you know, there was this line snaked around in all the companies, you know, at the time, companies like Anderson Consulting and, you know, everybody standing in line with their resume, you know, got on their Sunday best. and. I just started walking up and I remember looking at a list of careers and I seen something that said consulting. And I said, I don't know what that is, but I think I could probably do something like that. That sounds, that sounds about something I would like doing. Ignorance is bliss. So I remember walking up to a couple of recruiters for companies. It was a healthcare consulting firm. I remember I walked up and I said, I said, okay, I'm reading your company. It looks interesting. Tell me about yourself. What do you do? How do you uh, get your message out into the market? I was asking questions, but from a behavioral science standpoint, because again, that's all I knew how to do. I didn't know anything about business. I had none of that context. But again, what I understood was people. So I came at it at that angle. And they just kind of looked at me and they said, oh, but apparently students had don't ask those questions. They just say, hey, here's my resume. Here's a little bit about me. And then they just drop it off and they go on. But I really wanted to know about them. And I think that took them back. And I said, hey, well, do you have an internship program? Because I'm really interested in what you do. I would like to get a little bit of some onboarding into what you do so we can understand each other a lot better. And they said, oh, we don't. And I said, well, you should think about having one. And they said, would you meet us the next tomorrow morning? And talk about that? I say, oh, yeah, absolutely. They say, no, we would love that. Here, you know, we exchanged information. Here's my resume. And immediately I started to realize very quickly oh, wait a minute. Nobody's going to come at it this way because we're not really taught to come at it this way. So being a behavioral science just gave me a very unique way of leveraging and communicating 
what I thought was my value, but also to engage with uh, leaders in a way that it was more, you know, communicable. It was an even exchange. It wasn't one sided. You know, it was an, an interactive type of conversation. So that taught me a lot. And I ended up getting about 10 interviews from that career day. And I credit that to that type of exchange that was fueled in large part from a behavioral perspective of just wanting to understand what makes this company tick? Why do you think what you do is important in the marketplace? Tell me about your culture. And you have to understand that this time, nobody was talking about corporate culture. Nobody was really having that conversation at all. But again, from with my background, that's what I knew. So that's what I leveraged. That's great. Again, as we're talking about not being conventional, you know, whatnot, I think that approach from us being able to speak to you prior to, but also looking at the progression of your career, I think that is definitely in your DNA, you know, at this point. And I know you you had like a long corporate career, worked in manufacturing, you did some think tank stuff and and some things like that. And I know you've talked about it. You're, you're the only in a lot of those situations. You're the only in behavioral science, you know, compared to your friends. You're probably... I worked in manufacturing for a while. I know I was the only in a lot of those manufacturing environments. And then you went to a think tank. I mean, a lot of people don't even know what a think tank is, you know, but, <laughs> yeah, but that's where a lot of smart people get together and start showing off how smart they are and tell us how we all should be smarter or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, can you describe like, you know, as you're going through your career, what it was like to be, to be the only, and if you felt like you had to like, be twice as good to really succeed in in those areas? You know, it's a great question. And it's funny because, and y'all will notice this, is there was a common thread for me in this whole thing. Really from a lot of different angles, I was the only on many different levels. I was the only brother. I was the only black person, but also I was the only behavioral science person. So I experienced a lot of onlys and I got a bit used to that. And, and it gave me some unique insight. So when I left school and started my first job and career, again, there was no market research. You know, there was, but it wasn't as pronounced as it is today. The data science, it was, you know, largely maybe among engineers and at the time, software engineers, maybe infrastructure engineering at the time. So a lot of this was what I did during those times very similar to what I did at the career day. Hey, you don't have uh, market research and data science. I think I can be an analyst that does that. And so the first company I worked at out of, out of school, they didn't have anything like that. I actually got in, I got the job because I took a sociology project that I did looking at demographics and I applied it to their business model, which was to try to understand customer behavior. So this was the beginning of the development of a market research. But again, they didn't have it and they certainly didn't have anybody like me. So I was the only and the market research at the time became the only. So I got used to and again, this will speak, I think, to leadership and, and what as leaders we end up doing because we end up being on the forefront and on the edge of things. And, you know, you develop a uncomfortable comfort on being on the edge when you're the only one. Now, Keith, you asked a great question. 
in terms of that I feel like I had to be twice as good. It's interesting. And I will say this, when you are driven by what you are strong at, and when you're driven by discovery and authenticity, being good is implicit in that. You're doing what you're designed to do. And so you don't have to think in a heavy handed way on being good because you know you're good. You watch athletes, you know, you watch LeBron, you know, you, you watch boxers or you watch entertainers. And when you know they're good and they in the pocket, they know it and you know it. So one thing I learned early, very early on was I'm going to play to my strengths, one, because that's all I know to do. So I'm doubling down, I'm tripling down on what I do best in any given situation that makes sense. So what I learned in all that was I didn't have to think about being twice as good. I didn't have that pressure because I was good because I was doing what I was designed to do. Even when I'm asked in the think tank, for example, I got invited to be part of those think tanks in large part because they saw me doing my thing. So they said, hey, you know what? We saw you doing your thing. You know, this guy and, you know, Colin Powell's organization, you know, they gonna want you, but, you know, we trying to get you. We trying to get at you. So, you know what? Come with us. Again, I'm just doing what I'm doing. because It's what I'm designed to do. And so that took that type of pressure right off the table. And I feel like if I hadn't done that, if I had done something a little more conventional or something more, you know, cookie cutter or, you know, following the prescriptive guidance, because again, that's, that's what we're taught to do. Right. And there's a lot of pressure to do that. And so I think the twice as good moniker gets importance when you're not really doing what you're naturally good at. When you're not in the pocket, then you really have to focus on being good because you're kind of doing what's unnatural for you. So I learned as I started building my career, as I started, you know, developing areas and companies that just at the time were virtually non-existent. Market research was a bit non-existent. Working with data and analytics the way that I was doing in the early 2000s was really not that, uh, you know, it wasn't prevalent at all. So being on the edge, being a first, being the only, as long as I was good, couldn't nobody tell me anything. And being the only wasn't a liability. It became an asset, but it became an asset because I was being authentic to my own experience. I appreciate that uh, point of view and perspective. And I think, um, you know, Keith and I, look, we speak regularly about some of the unspoken challenges that we've both faced, you know, in corporate America with respect to microaggressions and macroaggressions and, you know, just <laughs> outright silliness sometimes. You just spoke about what it was like being the only and that it was a bit of an asset for you. Can you speak more about maybe a few of uh, uh, the challenges that you had in your career as a Black man working in such unique environments? And on the flip side, were there any um, like one or two triumphant moments, you know, for you when you knew you had, you know, arrived or you were able to kind of get over you know, uh, negativity, uh, so to speak. Oh, yeah. And I don't have to tell y'all. Y'all know this good and well. And our audience will know this. Everything is challenging. When you walk in the door, you can feel it. And one thing about us, we feel energy. <laughs> we feel, folks. We know. And that's a blessing and a curse. So the challenge was just walking through the door because you already know. 
We see it a mile away. We're conditioned to pick up this stuff a mile away. It's on the radar. We feel it in the frequency. Like, oh boy, I'm the only one. I feel the eyes. I feel the awkwardness. You know, I feel the uh, the nervousness. Okay, here we go. And that is another inflection point I learned. You walk in, the deck is already stacked because you're different. So now this is a moment where you flame out and you get in defense mode, you know, you shield up or there's another opportunity. And again, I'll credit this to the behavioral science and a little bit of my upbringing of being around different folks, because in behavioral science, what I learned is that there are codes for all human beings. In behavioral science, you learn the source code. You get all the codes. So in a sense, I had the cheat codes. So when that moment, that inflection point came where you walk in like, oh, here we go. And so on. Here we go. And you feel the energy. Being the only one in the room in many, many instances, that became an opportunity to use those codes. Because one thing about it in those instances is that everybody is still human. Now, one thing about us, we are in this awkward position of always having to be prescient and being ahead and sensing ahead. But that can also give us an advantage. It's a disadvantage in terms of because we've been conditioned to be defensive against that. But it's an advantage in that we can model out what folks need to be doing in terms of being more inclusive and in terms of being open-minded. So what I saw initially as a challenge because of the background that I had, because I had all the cheat codes, listen, we know folks, we actually know the prevalent culture. Let me just say it like that. We know them better than they know themselves because we've had to, we've had to, we know all the stereotypes. I'll give you an example. I was at a, a convention very early in my career, and I had to meet with a director who was from, who ran a region in the South. He was from the deep South. Let me tell y'all something. This guy, this cat looked like he could have played in Roots, could have uh, starred in Roots. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, you know, he had the draw. He had it all, man. I mean, everything. And I had to hang with this guy and run a booth with him for three days. And I said, man. And of course, at this convention, this was a truck stop convention too. I mean, come on, y'all. I mean, they threw me in the jungle, right? Truck, truck stop convention. I ain't never heard of such a thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, all right, I'm in the South. I'm with my colleague from who's from the deep South and 30 plus years older than me. And I'm at a truck stop convention. I said, you know what? The universe got a sense of humor, but here we go. So there was an opportunity there. And I said, okay, this can either get real, real awkward, or I'm going to have to play with it. I'm in behavioral science. What I got to lose? I'm going to have to play with this. So I said, you know what? I'm going I'm to put on my best Dukes of Hazard. I'm going to get in that energy. Again, we know energy better than anybody else. I'm going to leverage that. I know what's coming. So I'm ahead of the game. So I'm hanging with him. And, you know, we talking, we talking sports and I'm getting to know him. I'm asking about him on a human level. Bob, you like to fish. Bob, you like sports. Bob, you like cars. 
knowing that, you know, nine times out of 10, he likes all these things. So I start asking about him. He opens up. He starts opening up. You know, we laughing about stuff because humor is a great leveler, you know, a great opening thing. And again, not to just make people laugh, but again, to relate, because I'm trying to relate to this guy on a very human level. And it's very natural. I say, you know, he at the end of the day, there's a human cheat code here. There's a human code. I'm going to leverage those human codes. So this guy opened up and he opened up. We were laughing at the booth together. You know, we started developing some inside jokes over the course of the day. And I'll never forget these two guys came up from a truck stop. They owned a truck stop. And uh, one of them was named J.D. and Bubba. I'm not making this up, y'all. J.D. and Bubba. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. And J.D. was the nephew and his uncle Bubba. You know, they came by the booth a couple of times. We were talking to them about our products and everything. And I said, y'all come back. I said, come back. You know, I said, you know, come back. You, have, you know, we'll chat some more. I said, I'm, I'm, I want to I want to know some things about what y'all do. They said, OK. So they came back to the booth and we started talking. And I said, all right. I said, look, I said, J.D., I said, Bubba, don't let J.D. talk too long. I said, I see him over there with his Versace shirt on. I said, trying to look good up here and showing everybody up. I said, look, happy hours coming around the corner. And Bubba started laughing like, eh, eh, eh. I mean, like textbook. So <laughs> eh. like, I knew you was a good old boy. I knew it. Wow. <laughs> I, I said, man, I said, wait, what? I said, this is not on the playbook. Because again, y'all mentioned the four Ps. We were taught a very specific way. And the generation before us said, look, you need to be sharp, but you also need, this is the persona you need to have. And for me, I said, okay, I'm going to have a different persona. And so leveraging the human codes allowed them to open up in a way where that awkwardness went away. That energy went away. We had become a relatable energy. So I had to model inclusivity by opening up. And by doing that, they became inclusive. So it was a very instructive thing. They were able to mirror what I was doing because I used that moment, that inflection point to sort of rise up and say, look, I know what I'm dealing with, but here's a different way to approach it and bring and connect us rather than keep dividing us. No, nah, that's powerful, man. I mean, again, we talk about God's sense of humor, you know, putting you in that situation and watching you, you know, perform and letting you get to the bottom, you know, that really like started to work on that relationship. So we appreciate you, you know, for being able to hone that in such a young uh, a portion in your career. Switch gears just a little bit and talk a little bit about your latest venture, Higher Direction. Can you just talk about what your company is working on and, and how that fits into what you were just talking to speaking of? You know, the wonderful thing about all this is that everything underlying what we do at Higher Direction in some way, shape or form came out of a lot of these experiences and came out of obviously my behavioral science background and understanding that there are codes that help us shape and define our experiences. So what we do at Higher Direction and I'll put it like this because I think it's the simplest way to understand this. But think of us as 23andMe for professionals and Moneyball for teams. So we like to say that what we do at Higher Direction is help individuals as professionals and organizations, and particularly in leadership, connect 
and get aligned on projects and functions based on very specific, what we call operational value traits. And so unlike uh, some other technologies that will look at strengths around personality and some what we call character logical things, we look at how people work. And in this instance, think of it as sports or music in terms of people, how they like to perform. So some people perform very improvisationally, like a jazz musician. And then some people perform very by the book, like in something like classical music. And in sports, it's the same way. You have people that are tacticians and you have people that are artists. And so we try to get at the underlying operational strengths of professionals, build tools for them to help them navigate job roles in the job market, but also enterprising ventures like entrepreneurialism and different projects on the side that they would do, how to communicate their value and really what they're strong at from an operational standpoint. And we do the same for organizations. We help organizations design roles properly, roles based off of people's operational strengths, not roles based on heroics, you know, which is a trait we, we encourage companies to get out of. And then once they've designed the right roles and they've defined what their goals are, then they can start getting the right people based off a lot of those operational traits. Look, man, the work that you're doing just sounds incredible, right? Because, I mean, we've seen people use Wonderlicks. We've seen people use predictive indexes. We've seen people, you know, say that they can find the right talent. They got these qualities, but they're not going as deep as that in in terms of helping them design the work, you know, and then kind of placing people in the right situations that will lead to success, so to speak. So in my mind, this is just a perfect example of being on code. And we appreciate you for that. Your tools and technology can really help or people, if I'm being really specific here, right? And in that vein, what's the potential of your tools to dismantle the current thinking around the theory of work and as a result, level the playing field for marginalized employees? Like, what can you, you know, tell us about that, you know, uh, so to speak? That's a great question. A lot of what we tried to do and, uh, you know, a lot of our initial work was with within disenfranchised communities And a lot of people who we knew were intelligent, had a lot of operational gifts and strengths, but they didn't have maybe the language skills to articulate that. And one of the things that we understand in higher direction is how important it is to be able to communicate your value in terms of how you fit, something what we call fit to role. So we created materials where someone who maybe, you know, as one of my boys put it, look, if you don't have lyrics, then I can take one of your sheets that says, this is who I am. And I could submit that to a recruiter. You know, I can take that to a hiring manager and then I, it shows initiative, but then it also gives a very sophisticated readout of who I am and what my value is. So we wanted to put language and give language where, you know, it's already very difficult to talk about yourself in a way that fits a lot of what business functions do. We wanted to take that off the table for people so that they could get in and show what they could do. So facilitate that piece of it and not let that be a roadblock. Love that because that, I mean, that will take a lot of the bias out, right? Absolutely. And that's it, Keith. A lot of it was, hey, we're going to take that completely off the table. Okay, now what? There it is. 
And, and, you know, Keith and I talk about with a lot of our coaching clients also about the importance of being able to articulate your value proposition. What is it that you bring to the table? Because everyone can see your education. Everyone can see the organizations that you've been in or the roles. But what is it that you can actually bring, you know, to that role? And I, I appreciate, again, you know, that point of view and perspective and you all being intentional, you know, about helping create that. One final question, you know. As you reflect back a little bit so far on your career, because it certainly isn't over, how have you kind of found your voice and confidence as a leader? And uh, is there anything you'd tell your younger self based on where you are now and something you'd think about in terms of if you look back and could talk back to Mark 20 years ago? That's a great question. You know, where I have found a lot of the things that I think are critical for leaders are in what they call these baptism by fire situations. And you really learn about resilience, which is a a key part of leadership because you get a lot of stuff thrown at you, a lot of stuff thrown at you. You deal with ambiguity and uncertainty and volatility. And those are, you know, to quote someone, you know, that becomes the fertilizer. So, you know, the situation is stank, but it's also fertilizer to grow and learn how to get chops in a way where you can improve decision making. And you learn certain things. For example, I remember Colin Powell said something like someone asked him, Colin, how do you make decisions with so many things coming at you? You know, how are you able to pick out you know, what to do? And he said, I've developed a rule because you're never going to get all the information. He said, you're not even going to get most of the information. He said, as long as I have at least 40%, and many times I'll get between 40 and 70%. He said, I'll have enough where I can start to tease out options and I can develop a course of action. And so what I've learned in that uncertainty and in that, you know, volatility is there are things that can be taken out and that inform leadership. Because again, a lot of leadership is at some level modeling out these responses that you have to these situations that get thrown at you. So if I could tell myself something, you know, it would be stay the course, stay the course, because I'll tell you, sometimes you stay the course by grace. A lot of times I would tell people, look, I can't take credit for staying the course. I just didn't have a way out. So I had to, that pressure You know, you get sometimes the pressure makes you a diamond, you dirt at first, and then you become a diamond. And sometimes you feel like there's nothing I can do. And it's by grace sometimes that, you know, I was able to come out of those situations wiser. You know, a fool that persists in his folly will eventually become wise. That's how the saying goes. I'm still a fool, so I'm waiting. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) But it's during those moments that, you know, that becomes the stuff of leadership. That's what creates servant leadership. That's where the things where it's not about you, but it's about bringing value. It's about what's the common value? What's the universal value here? So those things shape you. And one thing I could go back and say is like, it's going to be all right. Hang in there. You know, you can stretch, you can stretch. And again, I was just fortunate enough to come on the other side, but there's a lot of times I wanted to run. And you know what? That's part of it too. That is part of it. That's a natural feeling, natural inclination. 
But, you know, hang in there and let the situation unfold. Let situations unfold. Many times it's not about us. A lot of times it's not about us. It's about a lot of other things coming together. And sometimes we are beside the point. This is outstanding advice, you know, for younger Mark, (laughs) you know, and advice that uh, like all of us can still use today. But, you know, this is the part of the show when we kind of, you know, navigate into like to the receipts, because I know when people hear your story, Mark, and I know they oftentimes hear Keith and I, and they think we put a lot of exaggeration on things, but we're really not. There's a reason why we're talking about you know, this episode uh, today. So today in our secrets, we're going to provide some receipts on representation in Mark's field of expertise, as well as receipts on bias and hiring that continues to impact underrepresented employees. So Keith, hit us with receipt number one. Yeah, receipt number one, according to a study from Forbes, of all the technical education fields that that are studied, data science had the lowest representation of female students at just 35.3%. Additionally, among these same technical fields, data science had the lowest percentage of African-Americans at 4%, Hispanic and Latino students at 7.8% enrolled. So there is a huge representation gap in this area. And to put this data into context, the population of the U.S. is 62% white, 17% Hispanic and Latino, 12% African-American, and 6% Asian Pacific Islander. So there's a huge kind of misalignment between who is in this field and working in this field and where the country is in terms of representation. That's a huge uh, receipt there, Keith. Receipt number two, you know, and those stats um, about students in data science, they don't translate, you know, over into the workplace. According to uh, Zipia, 80% of data scientists are male. And on the race spectrum, the most common ethnicity among data scientists is white, which makes up 64.2% of all data scientists. Comparatively, there are 18% of the uh, Asian ethnicity, 6.9% of uh, the Hispanic or Latino ethnicity, and 4.2% are Black. So again, as we're talking about the work, you know, here in the purple unicornish, you know, uh, nature of this, this is really, really true. You know, so we're talking about, again, the stats you know, about the students in the data science just don't translate, you know, into the workplace. But that then further translates into like all the market research, you know, the market research is dependent on the people who are doing the market research. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. right. (laughs) If that makes sense. So if you don't have our people helping to do the data research and the market research, the outcomes still are going to be like biased or leaning in a certain direction at the end of the day. That's where the mistakes and harm start to happen. But receipt number three, this receipt kind of showcases the disconnect between what people say they want to hire and then what the actual results of the hiring it is, right? So Harvard Business Review study. The walk in the talk here. That's right. The walk in the talk. (laughs) So Harvard Business Review study looked to uncover this correlation between companies who have all of these grandiose stated diversity goals for like college new hires and what their actual performance was when they brought these new college hires in, right? So as expected, firms valued higher GPAs and they preferred candidates that were enrolled in prestigious schools. Also as expected, firms valued the quality and quantity of internship experience. So having those prestigious internships at the big consultant firms and the investment banks and the big tech companies really mattered a lot more than the standard internships 
um, that students were able to get, right? And this kind of equated to like a half a point of a GPA difference. You know, ha having that prestigious internship, you get more credit for that than you would for what your GPA is at the end of the day. And in contrast, you know, students who had, you know, jobs where they actually had to earn some money to be able to help pay for school and other school expenses, that had no impact at all on the kid's ability to land a job at the end of the day, right? So, you know, these results suggested that a firm really didn't value those skills that were actually developed in a, in a real job. It was all about where you went, not what you did when it came down to it. So, and really, those really big prestigious internships, and I'm aware of this, most of them are unpaid. You know, when you go to these big firms, they are unpaid. So, you know, people like us, we can't afford to take those opportunities and those chances because we got, we're again, we're trying to earn money for books and stuff like that. Hell, we may even have to help our family pay a bill or two over the summer, you know, <laughs> or, or things like that, right? But that's rated this gap because these prestigious internships, you know, for a white male, that boosted their ratings by 50% more than the same internship on a female or a minority resume. Just all this bias is built into the system. I mean, that's that's it's huge. It's actually sickening, you know, when you when you think about it. Okay, Keith, the uh, final receipt here, man, number four. This uh, Harvard Business Review, you know, study was actually pretty fascinating. So I want to add, you know, another receipt with uh, which will bring home the point of why the the work that Mark does is so important, you know, for us. The study also asked companies how likely each candidate would be to accept a job at their firm because employers are unlikely to invest time and energy interviewing and recruiting candidates who are unlikely to join their organization. So again, you know, trying to make sure that they're going to get a little ROI, you know, uh, out of this. Across all fields, employers rated minority and female candidates less likely to accept a job if it were offered to them. This result suggested that firms might be less likely to pursue minority and female candidates, fearing that they would uh, be too hard to hire. Is it possible that employers believe that other firms in the industry are following or, excuse me, favoring um, diverse candidates in hiring? They might, you know, therefore believe that minority or female candidates have an easier time getting a role. Similarly, <laughs> They might also believe that minority and female candidates will be harder to recruit because many other firms will be going after them as well. But the data suggests that these beliefs are wrong. Okay, there is no evidence of firms displaying positive preferences for diversity. Indeed, uh, firms hiring in STEM fields displayed a bias against minorities and women. In fact, unconscious bias might be undoing the stated positive preferences for diversity when rating resumes. The study did find evidence of unconscious motives. The bias um, against minorities and women got larger as raters became more fatigued and spent less time evaluating each resume. Again, Keith, this really kind of brings it home here. This is why the work that, that Mark does is so important because we got these false, you know, narratives, you know, out there about what well, if I offered it to you, you probably wouldn't take it. Well, we'll never know because you don't offer it to me. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, because right. you think skills. I'm going somewhere else. Right. Yeah. That further perpetuates us not doing what we're supposed to do, even though we have these lofty goals that we talked about earlier, 
you know, here, it further perpetuates the same stuff. It's actually a little disappointing when you kind of read, you know, some of that stuff. But again, and you look at some of those statistics, you know, that we spoke about, Keith. But look, this is the part of the show where we kind of navigate and we get into the secrets, right? We've talked about careers and kind of where we've seen it. Now we try to go into the proactive part of this. So we have a double dose of secrets for you today. Mark will provide three secrets on tools you can use to align your career. And then we'll close out the episode with three additional secrets from Mark on how leaders can get on code and use their power and privilege to dismantle discriminatory systems in the workplace. So Mark, what are three recommendations or secrets that you have on tools people can use to better align and advance their uh, careers? So the first one is, I would say, is to hone in on your operational strengths. Now, different than say, you know, I'm a hard worker, I'm loyal. Those are characterological strengths. We're not talking about your character. We're talking about your operational strengths, a strategist type person. I'm a process improver, process improvement type person. You know, I'm a productivity oriented person. Hone in on what drives you, what we call fit to roll. Now, obviously you could look us up higher direction. We have tools, but there are other tools as well that will look at this. Some you know assessments that are out there in the market, look for ones that try to highlight those operational strengths. Number two is I would say once you've identified what your strengths are, you know, what you start. And again, this is kind of a constant discovery, but you know what you're good at over time. But part of that discovery is then learning how to communicate that value. At Higher Direction, well, we have something what we call a professional value statement that when you take our assessment, you finish the assessment, which is about 10 minutes to take the assessment, and you get your operational DNA, you get a readout of what your professional value summary or statement is. And this becomes a way to help you encapsulate like a 30 second pitch. Hey, who am I? How do I fit certain types of job roles? How do I fit certain projects? How do I, how would I fit certain partnerships? You know, am I the implementer to the vision person? That type of thing. So the second thing is learn how to quickly communicate your value and have that kind of 30 second pitch ready for any opportunity because opportunities are all over the place and you want to be ready. As a jazz theorist friend of mine said, you got to be ready to swing. When it's time, you need to be ready. And number three, I would say is stay in alignment. As you go along your journey, your professional adventure, stay true to those lanes. You're going to get tempted to do all sorts of things. Now, if you are creative type, improvisational, you like to ask what if types of questions, and you like hanging out in strategy, and you get offered a very good uh, project management, project administrator job that's in the weeds, understand you're going outside your lane. You may be going into misalignment. And so it could be tempting from a financial standpoint, but will you have long-term success? So you're taking the long view here, stay in alignment, stay in your lane, that becomes the basis for ongoing success. You're stringing one good experience after another together because you're playing to your to what you're designed to do best. Man, these are some outstanding secrets. I really, really appreciate the simplicity, you know, and those, right? But it's it's being true, you know, to the mission, you know, here. But I think these are all three things that will resonate, you know, with our, our listeners. Yeah, no doubt. And what three pieces of advice, Mark, would you give to kind of leaders 
on how they can use their power and privilege to really dismantle some of this bias that we talked about in the system when it comes to those matching of roles and assumptions that are kind of made about people when it may or may not even may be true. What should leaders be doing more or less of? I would say the very first thing it's important because it starts with home base, self-mastery and self-growth. I was once told by a Buddhist monk a long time ago, one of these think tanks, he said, Mark, you change the world by changing yourself. You start with you because what you do impacts and ripples out across everybody. People may not remember certain things about you, but they will remember how you made them feel. So your energy sets the tone. So it starts with us constantly be working toward authenticity and growing beyond what's comfortable. So your energy sets the tone. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is on the basis of that is practice diversity in your own life. Look, here's the reality. Nobody knows how to do diversity because diversity is not the basis of what the world is doing ever. So nobody knows how to do this. So we can model this because, again, we see things coming a mile away. We often have to take the leadership role and be the bridge in our own lives between, uh, you know, the corporate world and our own personal lives. So but we have to practice diversity in our own lives to model it. So learn from the other experiences beyond your own. Don't just look to what's familiar. This is a part of leadership. And if we do that, then we can model out diversity so that these things can start to come down because we're showing them how it's done. People follow energy. They don't follow words. They don't follow mandates. Nobody does stuff out of the goodness of their heart in the corporate world. We know that. If it becomes a mandate, they do it, right? If it becomes in vogue, they're going to do what they're asked to do if it's about compliance. But if we model it and they'll be like, man, I feel good. I like that. That feels right. That's how people respond. We see it in music. We see it in sports all the time. We need to put some of that same type of energetic feel, feel with what we do and model that out. The third thing, which I think wraps into all this is develop a connector mindset. Cultivate inclusivity in your own being again, so that you can model that for others. Look for the win. Everything divides us because we all have unique experiences. Every human being is individually unique. There will never be another like you in the world ever. So division is already our reality. But stepping up to connect and say, well, okay, what's the win in this? What's universal? You know, what is common about this? If you start to approach situations in that manner, then you're actually cultivating inclusivity. You're, and then you're showing people how to do it. Because again, nobody knows how to do it. All these corporate initiatives that talk about inclusivity, they don't really know how to do it because you know we live in a country where it's not based on inclusivity. So this is new and we have to appreciate how daunting that is. And as a leader, we have to practice that and in our own lives and show what connection actually looks like. Wow, man, this, this this has been like incredible. Like at the end of the day, man, I am just so grateful that you were able to come here today and literally 
drop science on us, okay? <laughs> I, mean, I feel like we we really got like a blessing, you know, today. Secrets Village, again, we are not playing around with you in season six. I mean, this is just something that we want to keep bringing to you all, things that you, like when, when we say purple unicorns, we're, we're serious, you know, about this. So Mark, we sincerely appreciate you being with us today. Yeah, fellas, thank you very much. This was an amazing forum. I love the work that you're doing. I look forward to more opportunities uh, to working with you and to our audience. I just want to encourage everybody, stay the course and stay connected to this platform because there are great things coming out of this and you're not going to get it anywhere else. No, we appreciate that. And I'll extend my thanks also for you being on the show. If you want to find more resources about what Mark talked about, connect with Mark. We have his website on our website. So go to secrets.com. Look in the show notes for this episode. It will have everything in there that you need to get yourself started and, and link into some of those tools that Mark was just talking about. And again, Mark, you are officially in the Secrets Village, and we're going to figure out how to get your toolbox out to our people, out to the community. For our listeners, our Secrets Village continues to grow because of you. All of the downloads, all of the questions and the emails that you all send us, you know, it matters. We're trying to blow up secrets in 2023. And so you can help us again. I, I joked about it uh, all the time here in terms of friends helping friends. Go tell five friends to listen to secrets. Join our LinkedIn networking uh, group and write a review on Apple or Spotify. Also, go out there and get you some gear. Go out and get some. It's about to be summertime, too. We want you to be right. That's right. And if you've been on our website, you know that coin meter spins every day. Because, again, we don't just do this because we're good people. We actually want to help you get your coin. Get some money in your pocketbook and generate that generational wealth. So since we started Secrets, we've been able to help our folks get over $8 million in total compensation increases. We try to get it to 50 so we can shut this thing down. <laughs> but we want to make sure you got that generational wealth at the end of the day. So stop putting off the coaching. Stop making excuses. Engage. You know, manage your career, model the behavior that Mark was just talking about. So book an hour with us. We can help you build that resume, get your talking points together, you know, help you negotiate that compensation, all that stuff. Uh, trust me, you won't regret it. Not at all. And again, look, we want to thank uh, Mark Palmer once again for just being with us today. This was an amazing conversation. One thing that KP and I have good data science on, though, Mark, is how to keep mixing up these cocktails. I'm almost a perfectionist, <laughs> you know, in, in certain areas. I'm kind of like a scientist myself over here, right? So we're going to refill these cups and just get back at it. So Secrets Village, we appreciate y'all. Keep listening. Thank you for tuning in to Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Peace. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed yet another episode of Secrets. If you are motivated and excited about being a part of the Secrets Village after listening to Keith and Ricky, please show these brothers some love by spreading the word to people that you know need this knowledge. Until next time, cheers.